good thing I'm not scared of heights, Andrew. Um, I started listening to the lyrics of songs when I was 14 years old. And the reason I remember that was that I remember that I was listening uh, to the stereo in a friend of mine's car as we were riding down the road. I was in early ninth grade. He put a tape in. Uh, you can look that up on the internet. Um, <laughs> and he put it in, and it was by a band called REM. And they sounded really strange. And something about it that made me want to know what they were saying, mainly because the album was entitled Murmur, and they were doing a lot of murmuring. But it was the beginning of my listening to music and taking the lyrics in. Fast forward, uh, no pun intended, to 2003. We were living in Austin, Texas, and REM was closing out the Austin City Limits Music Festival, September 21, 2003. And I had a ticket and decided to wander down there. It wasn't far from our house. It was about 9 p.m. And what unfolded for the next hour and a half just kind of kept leaving me spellbound because of this. I realized that I had been listening to that band for 21 years. And for 21 of really formative years of my life, it was kind of like the soundtrack, you know, to the background of my life. And I think I kind of left in a daze. It was wondrous, and it was also gave me a lot to think about. Now, don't get me wrong, in, in those years, uh, intervening years, I, I had taken to singer-songwriters and to listening to lyrics, and there was a girl named Patty Griffin who lived in Austin, and my children from really birth on uh, could tell you her song lyrics, most of which were appropriate, not all were, actually. And I've now graduated to the level of Jason Isbell, uh, Alabamian, who I think is kind of the premium by which all singer-songwriters are judged. Because when I heard him say, I was riding on my mother's hip, and she was shorter than the corn, all the years I took from her just by being born, she was 15 when he was birthed, I was hooked. The truth is, is that there's nothing like a story, but there's really nothing like a story that's set to music, and there's nothing like a story that's set to music and that's sung to you. The scriptures really present us with a God who is a storyteller. He's actually a story maker. Because the Bible is not simply a story, it really is history. But he's a songwriter. And he's even a singer. He's really the ultimate artist in many ways. He's the ultimate communicator, and he is the only one who ultimately has the ability to communicate in word and even in song in a way that marks us indelibly, not only in the mind, as music is really good at doing, but in the heart. God has employed for centuries singer-songwriters, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Ezekiel, I just want to read to you briefly from one who may or may not be on your playlist this morning, but it's Zephaniah. Zephaniah came along at a time uh, when Israel was not doing well, but there was a king named Josiah who was instituting some very significant reforms, bringing Israel back to God's word, bringing Israel back to a call to faithfulness to the Lord. 
It's hard to know when you read Zephaniah really how successful Josiah was over the long haul. He has some pretty sobering things to say, not just to Israel, but to the nations. But like all of the prophets, he also says, in the end, there will be a remnant. God will not forsake his people. And he constantly points to a time called that day. That day. And on that day, the story will change. And on that day, the story will be fulfilled. And on that day, the singing will be different. We read at the very end of this wonderful little poem, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, for the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This past Friday, William Willimon preached here from this pulpit. He's one of my heroes, and it was a joy to hear him. And one of the deep things I've learned from Dr. Willimon is that one of the reasons that the Bible is history, is narrative, is poetry, is song, quite often strikes us as, I don't know, a little boring is that we're constantly coming to it thinking that it's primarily about us when it's not. The Bible doesn't really get interesting until we remember and, and really delve into it for what it is, and that is a story, poetry, songs that first and foremost are about God. And the most interesting thing about Zephaniah's wonderful words that he has to Jerusalem and to us today is that first and foremost, they're about God. You might say, well, yeah, singing something that God's people do in the church, right? It's something we do to praise God. It's something we do to acknowledge him. We sing to God. But of course, in this passage, the people of God are singing to God, but that's not the baseline note. Underneath the singing of the people of God is something much deeper and more foundational, and it's God singing to his people. God is pictured here like a dad walking around in the middle of the night singing to his firstborn in order to quiet them. This is the God who's also spoken of here as the king of Israel who is mighty to save. This is the God who is judge. And this is the God who delights in his people. Now, in the time in which we live, when we make a point like this, I think we have to be very clear, and it's for this reason. I, there's a meme, you know, M-E-M-E, -E, these little funny little 
pictures and little movies that get sent around on the internet. There's a meme that goes around from time to time these days, and it shows a girl who's young, like probably in her 20s, and kind of with it, and uh, she says on there, she says, I love my pastor, but I'm a little confused because he keeps telling me just how wonderful I am from the pulpit. And I'm now wonder, starting to wonder, I mean, how much do I really need Jesus? When we talk about God singing over us and telling us how much he loves us, there's a way to understand that that's appropriate, and there's a way to understand that that would fall short of appropriate. Let's put it the way Jesus put it. gospel writer, Luke, records Jesus telling two different stories. The first one is about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And we're told that one of the sheep goes missing. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 in the field and hauls off and goes over hill and dale and fence and whatever else to find the one and eventually finds the one, comes back to the other 99, he has 100 now, and he's relieved, and Jesus says, wouldn't any of you do that? And of course the answer is, no one in their right mind would do that. Why would you risk 99 sheep for the sake of one sheep? And Jesus goes on and says, and there was a woman who had 10 silver coins, not gold coins, just silver coins, but still significant. And as she was about to go to bed one evening, she noticed that one of them was missing, and so she lit all the candles in the house and she began to turn the furniture upside down. She began to sweep underneath uh, the rug. She pulled them up and threw them out the front and got into the corners. And eventually, along in the wee hours of the morning, she found the coin. And when sunrise came, she went out and told everyone in the neighborhood, I lost 10%. But I found it. And so tonight I'm going to throw a party, a party that no doubt cost more than the coin that she found. And Jesus implies who wouldn't do that? And of course the answer is who would? It just seems like an inordinate amount of effort for such a small reward. And I think once we are honest about the fact that that's actually what Jesus is getting to, we can begin to go somewhere really. Because perhaps the most striking thing for us about a passage like Zephaniah is that when we, ring, we read about people singing about God, we think, well, yeah, that's what we do at church. But then when we read about God singing about his people, A, something just doesn't seem quite right about that, but, but B, I mean, what's the big deal, God? I mean, seriously, is there that much to sing about? in relation to us? You know, Lent is a time of preparation, and I think a good way to understand it is it's a time of recalibration. The recalibration of weights and measures, the kind of weights and the kind of measures we use to figure out what's not only important, but to figure out what's really good news and what's moderate news, reasonable news, but nothing really that out of the ordinary. The truth is Easter is coming, and it's a grand occasion. 
But I think what Zephaniah is telling us is that the grandness of the occasion really cannot be grasped or understood unless God sings about it to us in a very particular way. The story, the history, the narrative from Good Friday all the way through Easter and even on to Jesus' ascension, pointing us even forward to his ultimate return, all of that, it can only really be grasped in a way that it would be something to sing about. The scriptures are telling us, Zephaniah is telling us, if God is the one who tells it to us as a singer-songwriter and does so in a manner as only he can so that we get it and it's indelibly marked on our hearts. The truth of the matter is, is that what Good Friday marks and what Easter marks is nothing less than the restoration of the image of God. And what God does in the scriptures is he tells us once again what a big deal it was to speak creation into being, which J.R.R. Tolkien always said he thinks it was sung into being. But not only that, then to crown it with a creature, male and female, made in the very image of the Creator. But Zephaniah doesn't say that's why God's singing over his people. The reason God is singing over his people is that when the coin was lost and when the sheep went wandering and when the people just started dissipating and turning back to dust, he counted it worthy to do everything in his power to redeem them. And they are we. Jesus Christ is none other than God's song to mankind. When the word became flesh, it became flesh because God sung the word into the world. Gabriel came to Mary and Mary broke forth in song. And what the scriptures are telling us is that as wondrous as that was, there's still something more wondrous, and it's this, that when God irretrievably and irrevocably took on flesh, the story got very dark. And yet the love of God destroyed that darkness and produced light, and it's the story of the world. And it's our story if we are in Christ. And it's a story that is so good that it doesn't simply lead people like us to respond to it in song. It's so good that God sings about it to us so that we will know 
how wondrous it is to be made in his image, how much he loves us. And the fact that nothing in your life, if you are in Christ, is inconsequential to him. In our church, whenever new people come into the church, and by that I mean people who are either born into or converted into the church, we baptize them just as you do here. And years ago, in observing a friend of mine, the Reverend Joe Nevinson, doing baptisms up on Lookout Mountain, I noticed that when Joe would baptize children, he wouldn't stop with the baptism. He then would have the congregation sing to them afterwards. And so in our congregation now, after their baptisms, there are a lot of them. We had a Sunday school class have over 20 children this past year. We then have either the dads or the moms, whoever parade the children around and we sing to them. And it's not so much to calm the little ones, though it does have that effect, but it's to drive home to us and to one another, the almost embarrassing good news that God actually loves us in Christ. And that that is to be the story, the background, the lyrics, the song that is the backdrop to our lives. So can we stand now and sing together I'll lead you in the song that we sing to these little children. Will you stand with me, please? It's a song that the theologian Karl Barth said is the most profound hymn, perhaps, that was ever written. Join me, if you will. Jesus loves me, this I know. For love. 